adapting to an era of open innovation. This article will appear soon in our autumn issue of Parameters. Currently, Dr. Cronin is a professor of international security at American University and is the founding director of the Center for Security, Innovation and New Technology, also at American University. Dr. Cronin's newest book, Power to the People, How Open Technological Innovation is Arming Tomorrow's Terrorists, was published this year by Oxford University Press. Welcome to Decisive Point, Audrey. Thank you, Tony. It's a pleasure to be here. So first, please tell us why you chose to write about technology and military innovation. Well, the big picture answer to that question is there are huge dramatic changes occurring as a result of the digital era. These are pretty obvious for everyone. The growing importance of China, especially its aggressive competition in technology struck me. The theft of U.S. intellectual property, especially research on robotics, autonomy and artificial intelligence. And um, those broad technological changes are affecting every aspect of human behavior, including war. But more specifically, this began about five years ago when I was thinking about the third offset argument. And I was very impressed by the framework uh, that the United States should use its historical preeminence in technology as an offset to match any future peer uh, challenger, just as it did first after the Second World War with nuclear weapons offsetting the Soviet Union's quantitative advantage, second after the 1970s, uh, with precision-guided weapons offsetting our weaknesses when U.S. budgets were declining. And then finally, the argument goes that the third offset should use technology to counterbalance China or maybe Russia. And I, I thought that was a really brilliant way of thinking about it. I love historical frameworks, but I was very uncomfortable about the question of whether this current era is really comparable to the 1950s and the 1970s. So that's what this article uh, tries to address. How should we think about military innovation now and going forward? Uh, I think the United States needs to think more deeply and more broadly about how best to prepare and respond to the digital era because technology isn't really supporting the kind of centralization of power that has defined the Western nation state. Great. Great. Um, in your article, you also discuss open and closed innovation. Could you tell us what you mean by that and why this distinction is important? Sure. So um, what we had in the 20th century was mainly closed innovation. In the 20th century, you know, in order to have evolution, you had to be a military or scientific elite. And there was a great limitation on the availability of new technologies, things like nuclear weapons, uh, battleships, satellites, jet fighters, radar, and so on. All of these things were very expensive, difficult to build. The technologies required high levels of expertise, and they were protected by things like security classifications and copyrights. So we used language like prol proliferation about those weapons and phrases like civil, military, dual use. Um, and so that was the model of technology that prevailed in the 20th century. And, you know, to think of the iconic image, it would be J. Robert Oppenheimer with his team at, um, you know, working secretly on the nuclear bomb. But then in the 1990s, we opened Pandora's box. Um, the United States consciously shifted from a closed technological model to open development. And that was spurred by our enthusiasm and euphoria even about a new uh, dominated US, US dominated world order. So virtually all the major technological changes that we're seeing now 
uh, were developed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then they were shared in the 90s. So ARPANET became the internet. Uh, tax dollars developed the GPS. You're all familiar with these examples. Google built its search engine with mo money from a National Science Foundation grant, and all, virtually all the uh, elements of smartphones came from U.S. government programs, things like touchscreens and voice activation systems like Apple's Siri. And now that's not to take anything away from Silicon Valley and the brilliant things that are happening there, but basically the U.S. government consciously shared its technology, and what we have now, 30 years later, is what I would call an open technological revolution. Now, in an open technological revolution, anyone can get popular access to technologies, not the top end, not the most cutting edge, but in the second or third wave. And you don't have to be a nuclear scientist to use them. So, for example, people who have a smartphone can drive a robot and they don't have to know or, or maybe fly a drone. They don't have to know how to build a smartphone. Uh, individuals in private groups can buy, sell, distribute these technologies and also to in, can invent new purposes for them. And they spread via commercial processes, very, very different from what we had in the 20th century, which were much more controlled by states. So we still have to focus on the high end. I'm not arguing that the US-China competition in AI is unimportant, and nor am I trying to look beyond the fact that major corporations are controlling much of this development, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, particularly in things like AI. But what I'm trying to argue is that we also have to consider the low end technologies because they're causing broader societal change. And um, that affects patterns of conflict, especially terrorism, insurgency, mass shooting incidents, but also major incidents of war. Because after all, war is part of human behavior. And if we're changing human behavior in a broad way, that's going to change war too. It's not just a matter of who has more technology on which side in the next war. So what I'm trying to do is get us to look bigger and broader to an earlier historical precedent um, at the end of the 19th century, which was the last time we had this kind of open technological revolution. And there was no clear dividing line between amateur and professional scientific communities. So today, anyone can purchase um, drones or build robots or primitive gene splicing kits. And back then, uh, anyone could get, uh, you know, wire kits or uh, simple explosives, and they could they could invent in their backyards and in their sheds. And they had the founding of many new um, journals like Scientific American and Popular Science, and all of these were dedicated to the amateur inventor. And so the military professional says, "Yes, yeah, so what? We don't care what the amateur inventor is doing." But let me remind you that a lot of the things that came out of that period were absolutely critical to the First World War and the Second World War. Uh, for example, Gottlieb Daimler invented the motorcycle in 1885, and he was just tinkering around in a little glass shed in his backyard in Stuttgart. And the Italian uh, electrician Guillermo Marconi invented the radio in the attic of his home. Uh, Orville and Wilbur Wright, you're well familiar with that story. And Alfred Nobel first tinkled with, tinkered with um, explosives in a shed in his backyard uh, of the, the back, in the back of the family home. And so he ultimately came up with dynamite, which built the Brooklyn Bridge and changed the entire infrastructure of the world at the, during the maturing industrial era. So things that came out of the late 19th century included the airplane, the motorcycle, the radio, the blasting cap, which was crucial to um, all uses of artillery in the First World War, and high explosives, first dynamite, but then many other explosives that were far more useful to the military, things like ballastite and cordite. 
All of these things emerged out of individuals who were tinkering with pretty mature technologies, uh, but they had an enormous impact upon the future of war. So that's why I think we have to think more about eras of open technological development, because they're far more comparable to what we see today. Right. No, that's great. So um, what would you say are the policy implications of your argument and what specific recommendations would you make for change? Well, um, the most important thing is that we have we have to look not just at state technological advances, but also who is using these technologies, who's going to show up to fight. Because a lot of the major changes in warfare are not so much driven specifically by that one thread that we Americans love to look at, the technological thread, but more by who actually can use the technology. And so the first thing that we need to do in responding to that is to think more broadly when it comes to uh, national security and building new frameworks. Reorganize around new strategic concepts that consider society as a whole, not just these neat state-on-state -state war games and uh, frameworks that we like. That leaves us with a really messy picture because we have commercial tech companies that are far more powerful than many states. Professional armies are increasingly indistinguishable from proxies and non-state actors are developing much more lethal capabilities. Again, not at the top cutting edge, but in the second or third wave, and we are well into the third wave of these technologies. So the best way to respond is to build smart regulations and guidelines that minimize the risks and maximize the opportunities of things that are accessible to everyone. Things like simple synthetic biology, internet connected devices, and the ownership of personal data. These are all key elements of national security, but we don't look that broadly. So the second thing is to appeal to the ideals of today's tinkerers, you know, the Marconis and the Nobels of today. These tech innovators are creating tomorrow's breakthroughs and we need to offset their economic risks so they can do things that actually serve the national interest. Commercial technology companies like Microsoft, Google and Facebook need to remember the long history of how paradigm shifting innovations are often used in nefarious ways uh, and stop the kind of techno euphoria that is um, rather superficial. We need to look beyond that and um, develop robust legal frameworks and intelligent restraints on how these technologies are used because the U.S. commercial sector is just as likely as the U.S. military to inadvertently set off an arms race where the United States loses. The third thing I would say is to take down the military civilian firewall and defense institutions. This is not a new idea. This was um, very prominent in the Obama administration, the argument that we need to be able to work with um, tech companies and to have integration between the defense industry and tech companies in a productive way. But we don't seem to be doing that in a serious way now. We need to find a way to permit unorthodox talent to move horizontally in and out of the U.S. military without penalty. We still have this vertical career structure that's very much a 19th century professional structure and it's outdated. And so we end up with mid or senior level leaders that have little real knowledge, real in-depth experience with technology on the one hand and private tech innovators who are stymied by an industrial era bureaucracy on the other hand. That's not a productive way for the United States to stay ahead. So. Um, the last thing I'd say is that technological surprise is inevitable and it has to be built into everything that we do, all of our planning, all of our strategic doctrine. We can't keep relying on 20th century frameworks. 
We have to develop new military doctrine that that recognizes the fact that we're going to be surprised because we're in an era of open technological development. Absolutely. Uh, Well, thank you very much for your time today, Audrey. I am certain your article will inspire many and rich discussions. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening today. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Decisive Point.